So I go like, I hope Sophia, I hope wisdom, I hope female form um, to free us from our very small view of who God is, to say, actually, there might be a different explanation here. And one that allows for um, wisdom, for the female version of wisdom, and then for the outworking of that in our day-to-day life and in our Western society. Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Exvangelical Podcast, where being labeled a heretic is a good thing, if it means refusing to conform to toxic, harmful expressions of faith. We address your questions about God, politics, how we got here, and how to move forward. Nothing is off limits in our conversations with scholars, spiritual seekers, and activists in our quest to uncover the heart of faith. We're your hosts, Melanie and Gary Ellen, and this is Holy Heretics. Today's conversation is one that we've really been looking forward to. We're joined today by Kelly Lamb, whose experiences with patriarchy and misogyny in the church have given her her passion today. She's equipped with a master's in public policy and a master's in theology, and she has built companies, traveled the world, and even pastored a church. She looks for every opportunity to encourage women to exist loudly without fear, which is something I can get behind. She's also passionate about empowering women to lead in business, politics, theology, and the church. And this burden was birthed through the pain of having her voice stifled as a woman and being told to stand down. Today, she's working in the startup space and is launching the podcast Still Unfolding, which will feature diverse stories and voices about spiritual growth, changing beliefs, and the beautiful mess of deconstructing faith. Welcome, Kelly. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So after that introduction, it feels kind of weird to have a dude ask the first question, but <laughs> I'm going to um, because, and I'll try not to mansplain at all, I promise. Well, thank you. But, yeah, How yeah. kind of you. <laughs> well, yeah. So just tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, about your faith background and some of your upbringing that led you to question, you know, such crazy things like patriarchy and misogyny. Yeah, I love it. I actually credit my upbringing for the anchor of where I I think I land in the like graciousness of I, I have a great relationship with my dad and was actually a pastor's kid. Um, so I would say that was something that had has and continues to anchor me. Um, but grew up in the charismatic movement uh, in the vineyard, which was, um, you know, had its moments of beauty and its moment moments of crazy. Um, and growing up in the church, I think you see lots of things and you hear lots of things. And I was a very observant kid and so observed lots of things. Um, and it was through the process of being in and around the church that um, you start to, you know, you start to experience something. And um, again, my dad, I think, modeled a beautiful form of leadership. But the more you're around the church community, the more you start to ask questions. Um, there's pain around some of those questions and there's a lot of curiosity. But I grew up in the church, um, lots of different denominations, lots of different travel, which I think expands your worldview. Um, And through all of that expansion, I think I started to ask questions and was a very curious kid and that has never changed. So I would say it would be the curiosity and then growing up um, in the church and close to a pastor that brought me to the moment I am in today, um, one of more questions and more curiosity. Hmm. So what would you say you believe right now? Um, like what, what brought you 
to where you are now in your faith and like what do you espouse today, if anything at all? Great question. I still believe in Christ. I think there's a narrative of redemption in the scriptures um, that I would still attest to and have personally experienced the Holy Spirit. Um, and I think the the Holy Spirit is the thing that piques my, I would say maybe obsession with mystery that I go like, oh, this is this is amazing and this is something that can give me purpose. Um, I think when I step back, I I love the Sermon on the Mount and Christ's image of the kingdom of heaven and who he is and who he was. Um, but I would say around um, the Bible and the way that evangelicals are currently attesting their faith and the way people talk about really complex things in a very, very simple way, I think I started and continued to ask questions. Um, and so I think I've asked secretly a lot of heretical questions about, you know, how the Bible has formed. Why were there just men around the table? Why, why do we only read the NIV? And if we're incredibly conservative, the ESV, why are we not basically listening to more literature with more diverse opinions about who God is? Um, and then I think that leads to this other kind of community and this other camp of people that um, are wondering kind of and allowed to wonder and then has led me to authors um, who I think have deeply influenced me to allow myself to ask questions. Um, I read a book in my second year of university called New, S New Seeds of Contemplation by Thomas Merton. Mm -hmm. And he so was the good. gate. Oh, he's so good. He was the gateway for me to basically wonder um, without shame and to ask questions that scared me. Um, and so it was through reading that book and then basically piqued my interest for other authors and other contemplatives and mystics that I think I held my background and my curiosity intention and and just kind of secretly let that space exist. Um, that would that would be the best way of explaining it. Does that make sense? No, totally, totally. I think you hit on something there. Most of us grew up in faith communities that uh, never introduced us to the mystics. It never introduced yeah. us to experiential spirituality. And we didn't even know that this half of our brain or this half of our spirituality even existed. And when you begin to find people, you know, like like Merton or some of the ancient Christian mystics who yeah. truly had a different view of God, uh, a different experience with God, um, and and many of them would, you know, call God she instead of instead of him definitely it, it totally opens up your world to realize that there's a great expanse of christianity and spirituality that so much of us were just simply never never even introduced to it's so um, true yeah so if i'm remembering correctly from some of the conversations we've already had with you uh, you pursued the priesthood for a while can you tell us a little bit about that journey and then what happened to derail that dream yeah, I absolutely can. It's a bit of a, <laughs> it's a, it's a sensitive topic. I hold it really closely, but I started to talk about it more widely because it's been something that has so shaped who I am today. Um, I think I wanted to pursue the priesthood out of a love of the church and um, a conviction that actually the church and the church community is something that I think can shape our world and the sentiment of worship. I think that's something that um, I've, I always look for 
in people. And so I was very drawn to the church. And about five years ago, I would say, I know it sounds like so evangelical and the word itself triggers me and the word trigger triggers me. Um, <laughs> but I felt, if you know what I mean, we it's overused. Um, but I felt cold. I was like, oh, there is this thing that is pulling me to work for the church. That is, there's just this like the deepest thing in me that wanted to help people navigate their faith and their spirituality and then advocate for a church that looked like the church rather than like an institution. Hmm. Um, and I had landed in a conservative vein of the Anglican church. And, um, you know, I look back and I go like, oh, that was probably my first mistake. If you view <laughs> life as, you know, one of this was a mistake and this wasn't, I've tried to view it with more generosity towards myself, but basically moved towards the priesthood. Um, and, and with this maybe naivety that, you know, I feel called, I have had so many leadership positions in my life. I love preaching. I love speaking. I love, you know, pioneering things. Basically, like I knew that rather than being a vocational deacon, um, which is a very different role, um, I was actually wanted to be in the priesthood. And I started moving toward this and basically kept getting this resistance of um, people being like, oh, maybe you've heard your calling wrong. Um, lots of women hear their calling wrong. Um, <laughs> of course they do. Of course they do, because our ears are so different and we're not at all attentive to the Holy Spirit. Right. Um, but what I what I basically ran into was this like very loud, almost neo-Calvinism again. Um, mm. It just keeps, see, like it just responds itself. I have no idea how. Um, and this like very loud kind of m resistance to and fear of um, not being in line with the Bible. <laughs> And, um, and I was like, okay. And there's like, not a lot of ways you can argue that with people who completely believe it. Um, so I basically started on this journey, um, tried to land at churches that were a bit more affirming of women. Um, I was, I am also single. And so I, I think there was fear around my sexuality because the <laughs> worst thing that you can get is a, like a single woman who wants to lead. Um, and so I think there was just these like this like fear of what do we do with Kelly? Um, but never really explicitly said, always more mm. felt. Um, and so I was on this like path with increasing difficulty. Um, and then I think for me probably, and this is where I, I try to have generosity, which is I definitely grew a narrative, which was like, there is silence here. There is confusion here. The goalposts of this process keep moving. The requirements are different for me. Like, where are the requirements for everybody? Because nobody's talking about this. Um, and then I couldn't, there was basically like two women who were already priests. And then I couldn't find any others in the process. Hmm. And basically the narrative is, oh, well, like they don't want to be priests. And I go like, does anybody tell them they can be? Does anybody right. invite them to be? Does anybody like pave the way for them to come into this space? Um, so I, yeah, I basically pushed and pushed and pushed. And through that process, I needed a theological education. So I went to school and because you're a woman, you just have to do better. So I worked really hard, um, loved the theological training. I think that's like one thing that out of all of this, I go, oh, that's incredibly meaningful and will shape my future. Um, but the silence and the kind of dismissal of women serving openly and preaching loudly um, it eventually just got to me and I felt like backed into a silent corner 
and realize I don't want to fight these people. I don't want to spend my life fighting and they're unwilling to listen and they don't really want me here. Yeah. Um, and so if this is my gifting and my calling and I'm not wanted and, you know, largely women aren't wanted in those roles, I don't even want to be here. So I probably, I would have self exited um, that process and that for now, that dream, I think I'm finding other ways to serve and other communities that are incredibly beautiful. But the dream of the priesthood at the moment is one that I said, you know what, this is not something for now. And I don't want to fight in this capacity. I want to inspire in another. Hmm. So, I mean, I, in my experience, I, I know how hard it is to be a woman in that evangelical subculture. And it, it really gets, um, it messes with your head. <laughs> it messes with your head. Mm-hmm. It, it challenges you spiritually. It makes it really hard to do anything professionally, honestly, in a lot of ways. And I think your story shows just how real misogyny and patriarchy is and how it impacts so many women all over the world. Um, and so I'm curious how that's impacted your faith, you know, like, did it make you question? Did it make you doubt? How, or did it just make you go, okay, I'm going to figure this out? How, how did that impact you? Oh, yeah. I would say all of the above. I think I, I have days where it's this topic where I go like, really? Really? Like the only, you're telling me the only moment that women were equal was when Jesus walked the earth. Cause I think he did a lot to elevate them and to try to create structures and ways of honoring women. I think there's like, when you read the Bible from that vantage point, you go like, Oh my goodness, he really did change something. But like the moment he left and Peter basically said, like, this is this is the church. And then the pastorals like entrenched this way of treating women. You go like, are, are you serious? And the Holy Spirit hasn't intervened at all in this hmm. um, at all. Like, where are you? Um, because I think that for me, that that topic and the importance of equality is so important. Um, and so though there are those days where I go like I I'm not sure, I just am not sure, and I think I'm okay. I think I've become okay with that. I think when I was younger, that would have rattled me really deeply, and I would have gone down this trail of kind of even more existential quest- questions. But I think I have rested in that doubt and that fear and that like, yeah, am I investing in the wrong thing? Mm-hmm. And basically, I've like followed the question to the place where it hurts and just been like, yeah, that hurts <laughs> um, and could cry about it on some days. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think I have days where I go like this whole this whole thing is structured in a way that offend almost offends women, like the way it was written, some of the like lack of well, a lot of lack of interpretation, the way it's preached, the way the church has still embedded this. Um, male headship, like male leadership to the nth degree, where I go like, this is so frustrating and I'm out. I've had days where I'm like, I'm out. <laughs> this is this is nuts um, because I don't know if change is possible and I don't know if people really want it. There's this like extreme right and extreme left. And, you know, the voices of those who don't want women to lead are very loud still. Um, so I think there um, is a lot there that really, really, really deeply rattles me. Um, I think the like male version of 
the of faith itself is patriarchal and I have a heart I've had to basically do a ton of reading and a ton of um work around how is this possible that the very nature of the trinity is male um which has led me to some like really fun discoveries and some like well heretical maybe <laughs> for some for some very conservative evangelicals uh, view of of god and and kind of questions around who sophia is um but yeah it's it's this thing that causes pain and gr- tons of grief and loneliness and despair but then has also sparked a i have a passion for change hmm. um and that's the thing that has like kept me engaged and the thing that goes like i will give my life to create space so that women don't have to go crazy in this system well i think a lot of us end up saying i want nothing to do with this in the end because yeah. <laughs> we're like if it's if it's like patriarchal at its roots, why would we stick it out? So I'm curious yeah. what made you say, I do want to stick this out. I want to, like, I still believe this, even though it looks different maybe than most people think. Yeah, to be fair, and this is going to sound hilarious, uh, Mary Magdalene, mm-hmm. um, I was like in the the hardest part of the priesthood journey. I, a friend texted me, he was like, oh, have you seen this movie called Magdalene? And I. Um, I was like, nope, haven't, haven't at all heard of it. Um, watched, rented it, watched it with my parents and two friends who were at my house for Easter. And I, it is like the single most time I have, I've never wept harder. Hmm. Um, cause something in it grabbed me about the, the visual representation of her and her relationship with Christ. Um, and basically the, there was this like tons of research went into this movie. I ended up meeting with the women who did the research in London. Um, heard this narrative of how the movie basically it there was like a lot attached to the producer and the me too movement and so it didn't get released in a mainstream type way so nobody ended mm. up really learning about it mm-hmm. um but it was this movie and then basically this like i an emotional response to the women of the bible um and then to mary magdalene the first apostle um who basically like i believe was the first one to say like i've seen christ Mm-hmm. Um, that m- I go like, I want to be a Mary Magdalene to my society and then a doctor to the church that says I have been hurt by, but I will continue to say, I think I've seen him. Um, and I think I've witnessed the Holy spirit and I think I know Sophia and I'd like to tell you about it rather than this, like I'm hurt, I'm out black and white. It's just, it's almost so black and white that it's again, the same. It's like, I can be so anti-evangelical that I have the same spirit. <laughs> You're right. Um, so it's just, this, yeah, rather than being so opposite, I go like, I actually still want to participate. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I, I love that. Um, and you mentioned earlier the whole notion of Jesus. Um, I don't know that we could call him a feminist. I mean, you know, I think there's some scholarly arguments around that to where, mm-hmm. you know, some scholars would say absolutely Jesus was far ahead of his time and elevated women to full equality. I think there's there's evidence for that in the text. Mm-hmm. And then you can also argue that he didn't maybe do enough. But yeah. there is something to be said about the regression that happened immediately following yeah. You know, him leaving. And yeah. I think that's just really sad. You can see it in the text. Uh, you can see as the church began to be more institutionalized, it, it began to marginalize women. But there was this beautiful moment there um, where women were at the very center of faith. I mean, Joan Chittister talks about this, that you know, at the two 
deepest mysteries of our faith, the incarnation and resurrection, don't mm-hmm. happen without women. Yeah. You know, women were uh, there at the cross and the first um, at at the tomb. Um, you know, men uh, ran away; they went and hid. And yeah. the women came. The women were brave enough. Uh, they were brave enough to be there at the cross and be there at the tomb. And and as you said, um, you know, preach the first post Easter sermon. Totally. Um, and so I think I think there is a a very simple statement to say: um, without women, uh, Christianity doesn't exist. Without women, the church would not exist. Yeah, and absolutely. yet, somehow. Women don't exist in the church today, and and yeah. I think that comes back to um, something we alluded to earlier that I want you to speak to the notion of uh, patriarchy at the highest level that yeah. God Himself quotes is is a guy, and and there are some incredible conversations in academia and theology that actually point to. One, either that God is obviously, you know, non-binary, um, yeah. but that there are female aspects, not only of the Holy Spirit, of, of divine wisdom, Sophia, that you mentioned, but also mm-hmm. of God herself. So mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about that for someone who's never heard the fact that we, oh, dear Lord, we might be able to call God a girl? Like, what, what does that even look like? Yeah, I so appreciate that question. I think, you know, you're right. I think a lot of the current structure of Christianity is a result of um, the way that we have viewed in an embedded gender um, and where we belong. And so, yeah, I, I think as it relates to God, I think my my where I can have grace for people and I have to practice that because sometimes I can be like, really? Um, <laughs> is I think that in order to understand the vastness of who God is, I think we have to just reduce him. I think we have to go like, he's in a time and space continuum. He has a gender. He looks something like my father, but with a beard, because we call him father. And he's like a little glowy um, and <laughs> <laughs> with a tiny halo. Um, and then my dad would be horrified to think that he's like my view of God. Um, but I think that we ha- we just have to do that in order to understand in the context that the Western church wants us to understand. But I think as soon as you move over to the mystics, you no longer have to attribute such human attributes to God. You're like allowed to exist in this mystical state. Um, so the patriarchal view of God, I think, is just our way of like trying to really just understand. Um, but then I think where I start where things start to unwind for me a l- more is the like how much we have emphasized the father son relationship. And there is like very, very clear, you know, God sent his son to mm. save the world that you're like, okay, like I can't argue with that, with those like very clear um, versions and translations of who God is. But I think um, what really frustrates me is how the rest of scripture follows suit. Like, Joseph and Jacob or Abraham Abraham and Isaac. And in so many of those stories, I go like, why are we not hearing about the female, mm. the, the emotion of woman? Um, you know, Sarah, who was apparently childless for 90 years, then Abraham just goes and says, I'm going to sacrifice our son. You don't think that she was the one like praying for something to save the situation? <laughs> 
Um, so you go in all of these stories, the the storytelling mimics the the patriarchal version of the Trinity. Um, and that's the part that bothers me. And I think we've then just replicated that in our own history. The men are the pastors and the women are like silently doing the things in the background. Um, and so I think, yes, it's it is a result of this like patriarchal trinity. But then I think once you go like, okay, yes, I will like let you guys reduce God so that you can understand him. I understand that. I have grace for that. I think it won't ever free women if we stay there. Mm-hmm. And so then I move over to this space of, you know, where are the women in the Bible? Why are they not named? And I basically like work my way back upward and then go even as far as to creation when God says that it was good. Who is he talking to? So I go like, I hope Sophia, I hope wisdom, I hope female form um, to free us from our very small view of who God is to say, Mm. actually, there might be a different explanation here. And one that allows for um, wisdom, for the female version of wisdom, and then for the outworking of that in our day-to-day life and in our Western society. And I, I think it takes a lot of courage to get there. Mm-hmm. Oh, it does. And I think it's a change in language. I mean, you've even referenced, you know, Christ, Sophia. How many of us have ever even heard those two uh, names put together? And yet that when you put them together, it, it not only makes sense theologically, but historically, you have this masculine and feminine image of the divine, even in the term Christ, Sophia. And and we know that Sophia means divine wisdom. And, and it's interesting that I think the early church, something that we've lost is the early church saw Jesus or saw Christ as both the word logos and wisdom, yeah. Sophia. And so in the very incarnation of Christ, we have divine femininity and divine masculinity played out. And and you see this in, in the life of Jesus where, mm-hmm. yes, he was a historical man, but he had such tender, compassionate female qualities. I think the female qualities of Jesus often outweigh some of the more masculine qualities, especially as it relates to his compassion and his empathy and his care for the outsider. So uh, I, I just think that what you touched on there is so important as it relates to starting with a view of God that that also includes the feminine, and we see that in Jesus. So, yeah. it, you know, it's it's very orthodox. We've just lost some of that. Well, I think even the way you just talked about it, though, is like the feminine qualities are caring for others and, uh, you know, being compassionate. And it's like, why? Why do we think that that's the feminine and the masculine is not? I mean, I think it's so embedded in in our Judeo-Christian heritage that women are the compassionate, nurturing ones, and that's a feminine quality. But I, I really think it's a human quality. I don't know. You, yeah. you could probably speak better to that, Kelly, but I, I think even our language fails us when it comes to talking about the fullness of God. I absolutely agree. And I think I think we are limited in the way that we view those qualities. And then sometimes I go to locations. Like I think I go, Jesus actually spent time in locations where women were like getting water. Um, so I think there's this like re regenesis of how you want to read into the stories that you get told and the way things get preached. Um, 
even for me, I go like the story of Mary and Martha of like one was serving and like running around making dinner and one was at the feet of Jesus. For me, there's a different narrative there where some people have said that actually one was preparing the Eucharist. She wasn't just like making a meal. She was preparing for something else, which is amazing. And then the other one was in the posture of a, a student. Disciple, right. Totally. Which was like completely not allowed. So we get this like, do you want to like be like spend time with Jesus or do you want to prepare a meal? And you go like, mm -hmm. what? Those yeah. are two, those two could be wrong as well. Um, and that's like the like most preached sermon to women is, are you Mary or are you Martha? Mm. <laughs> Thank you. I might be Joseph. <laughs> right. I might be Lazarus. Yes. Who knows? Totally. <laughs> I love that. I've never even thought about that with that story because it is super preached to us. Like, are you going to sit at the feet of Jesus or are you just going to work, work, work? And it's like, mm. Totally. Well, the, the very notion of her sitting at the feet of Jesus uh, means and meant that she was a disciple of Jesus's. Absolutely. And, and totally missed that because we don't read that into the context. And and I kind of wonder if that was the problem. Like, hey, are you going to just let let her become um, a male? Are you going yeah. to let her assume masculine roles, Jesus? Or are you going to send her back to the kitchen where she belongs? Right. And, he, and she says that's, no. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's like, yeah. no, she's chosen the better portion. Um, and I'm so allowing true. her to be my student. So, yeah. And then some people, and this is like, I haven't done enough research here. And so I'm passing on other people's research. It's these two women who did the research for the movie I referenced. that ba They basically, basically said if there were just 12 male disciples, the gospel wouldn't have spread. That each one would have needed a female counterpart in order mm -hmm. to get to the places where women were. Mm. You're like, okay, wow. Interesting. Right. Totally. <laughs> you know, I wonder what their names were, but we just right. had 12, the 12 disciples. Yeah. Um, but they've been silenced. Um, yeah. Sad. Well, and I've, I've mentioned this before, but I, I wish that there was the female counterpart to the Bible because there yeah. are so many stories that we have missed because it was written by men and passed on through generations in a patriarchal society. Um, it's so true. But we don't have that. So, yeah. And then the female version of like Lord of the Rings. <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and then Star yeah. Wars and Star maybe Wars, the Chronicles right. of Narnia. Yeah. And <laughs> Aslan's actually a woman. So, anyways. Amazing. Hey, we, well, have okay. the, we have the shack. There's one. That's true. That's true. <laughs> and everybody hated it. <laughs> so right, great. Right. Oh, yeah. I remember that. I remember like reading it and loving it and then hearing about all the criticism and being like, oh, okay. Well, I'm, I, I I'm not obviously like can't like that because it's not, it's, it's heretical. So, I, yeah. I, I just won't like it anymore. You know, it's like, can't really talk about it. Yeah. yeah. One thing that I think is interesting about the female experience in modern Christianity is that we can feel so alone um, mm -hmm. because we just feel like if, if we do speak out, like we're singled out, we're called names. Um, or if you, you know, God forbid, look nice, you're going to be called a Jezebel or whatever the thing is. It's just, it can be so lonely being a woman in this patriarchal subculture. And so I'm wondering if you experience that and do you still experience that? And if so, are, is there anything that you do to cope with that feeling or, or to find community that doesn't just say you have to conform to fit in here? Yeah, it's uh, it's a, such a great question. I and a, 
a hard one. I think that the church creates a lot of loneliness in and of itself, regardless of being a woman or a man. I wouldn't know the male experience, so maybe Gary Allen can speak to that one. But I would say if you're not a stereotypical woman and that you want to just kind of stick to the status quo, um, I want to honor marriage and family. But if you don't have a husband and if you don't have kids and if you don't look like the typical family, there's not really a space for you um, unless you're like in the like college kids club. And then as soon as you're Hmm. past 25, you no longer fit there. Um, So there's that just kind of like socioeconomic demographic loneliness that I think the church has come to really value middle class families. And if you're not a family and if you feel lost and lonely um, or if you're single or if you don't have kids, you just don't really have a home. Um, Until you get married. I've watched this with so many friends. They get married or they have kids and then all of a sudden they're like, invited over to all the married people's houses. Hmm. Um, and so there's this like two prong loneliness. One is of your marital status. And then the other one is like, are you a thinking woman? Um, Cause if you're a thinking woman and if you're willing to ask questions of leadership or ask questions of theology, or even ask friends that you go to church with um, questions of, of importance, they look at you like you're crazy and you're like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sitting here like ridiculing you for lack of belief or lack of theology. I'm just asking. Um, so I felt extremely isolated. I, um, I don't talk about this very much, maybe at all, but I left a, um, kind of university church, um, up in Vancouver and went to a Japanese church, um, and I was one of three Caucasians and I went to a Japanese church because first of all, they're so warm and they're so welcoming, but it took away the longing to belong. But I was mm-hmm. like, I, I innately won't based on um, ethnicity and language. Um, and so I don't even, I don't have to grieve my lack of belonging. I just get to like participate and be here. Um, they've turned into a beautiful church family and I'm currently their interim pastor. <laughs> Funny oh, story. Wow. Um, but it was in a move to go to a completely different, um, group of people that I actually felt like that pain was for the first time in church, not there, but because I didn't have the expectation of it. Um, and so there's, yeah, I would say loneliness in my life has been severe. Um, and like an extreme spiritual homelessness. If you start asking questions, I think for probably, I would say upwards of five years, I resented that. and. Probably there was like some negativity around like, why don't people get me? Why aren't people okay with questions? And I think my anger has turned into grief. And then I think I've, I've basically like owned who I am more and, and started to be okay with like, I am a question asker and I am a status quo pusher. I will push the status (laughs) quo and people will not like that. And I am a leader. And so I will go to places and I will ask hard questions and a lot of people won't like that. And some people will. And I will, I found a home in who I am rather than in my expectations of church Hmm. um, or in faith. That's beautiful. I found a home in who I am. That's, I've never thought about it that way before, but I think that's so good because I, I think I've spent a ton of time in my spiritual journey wanting to be what I thought I should be rather than being who I am. 
Uh, yeah. You know, because I'm a I'm married, but I don't have kids, and I don't really have the desire to have kids. If it if we had them, great. Or we might adopt someday. But I'm not like yeah. dying, and people don't know what to do with that. And so then I felt like, what's wrong with me? Or I have always been kind of the more outgoing and like take charge kind of person. And women are supposed to be meek and gentle and that's just not me and so yeah. I love that idea of like just finding a home in who I am yeah hmm. well so you kind of alluded to this already um but we called the show holy heretics and yeah. part of that was to kind of reclaim that idea of heresy and that oftentimes heresy was slapped on as a label to things so that it would be disregarded and discounted and not yeah. considered because the powers that be didn't, they felt threatened by some of those ideas, even if they were more true and beautiful and good than the ones that were previously held. Yeah. So um, what what would you say is like the biggest idea or posture that you hold right now that is probably or is definitely considered heretical by the community that you left and the community that you were raised in? Great question. I I love that you guys are redefining that word. I think it needs so much more attention. I think heretics are anybody who pushes back <laughs> and wants change. Um, and I think often throughout history that that has been in some like frightening ways. And I think we'll continue to see that. But then I think there are also ways where I'm like, yeah, we should push back here. Um, I would say I went to a university that um we had to sign up. Uh, like I worked at it as well, and you had to basically like sign on to I believe all of these things. And um, I so many Christian institutions have these. It's just like their way of doing business. <laughs> <laughs> basically, like, will you, if you're leading people in this organization, will you like lead them accordingly to all of these things that are important? I didn't really back then give it a lot of thought, but one of the things was like I believe every single word. Um you know, is inherent and is God ordained and mm. God spoken. And I, I, it's a tricky one. I try not to talk about the Bible very often because there's so many people who could, um, do, do it more justice. I have basically, I would say right now, so much of my research leads to, are we talking about the NIV? <laughs> do I have to sign on to the NIV that every single mm. word in here is great? Um, and why can't I include other books? And I've like started reading the Apocrypha and, mm -hmm. you know, turning to Catholicism to say like, what are they reading? And there's like so many other works that inform my view of who I am as a woman um, that don't get, that aren't in like mainstream Bible. <laughs> and you go like, wow. So I, I would say that I dance around that topic a lot in who mm. I am and in who my community is. And even after this podcast, I know I will for sure get friends being like, really? Um, <laughs> and I'll be like, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> We're cool. Um, so there's, there's that one. I think it's the toughest one for me because it's the loudest, especially as you pastor and as you lead in Christian context. I think everybody wants you to believe like the full, the full thing is the full thing and don't question it. Don't ask how it was created. Mm. Yeah, basically, I like paste in other books of my Bible just for like a Kelly statement to myself. I'm like, oh, I'll add this one, print this one off, shove it in. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Um, just to like open up my own thinking. Hmm. Uh, and then I would say, yeah, like where women fit and um, 
I just don't agree with where a lot of people believe women fit, where, like we've already talked about, the gender of God. Um, Sophia would be heretical to a lot of people in the context that I grew up in. Um, but I think what I have hope for in in that, in the like what people would find heretical of my beliefs, is I feel like there's also a wave of people. And the more I ask hard questions of the people around me, where people are m- more okay with the unknown and mystery than I had ever thought. Um, so there's this like two pronged um, reality of I feel heretical, but actually some people are like, I get you. I've always thought that. And you're like, oh, apparently if we just start talking about it, we all like have so much more grace for each other. This is amazing. Hmm. Yeah, And then I, I've lost friendships too. So <laughs> it goes both ways. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Um, I think there are several things that you can find union with, with people and, and, you know, even maybe, saying patriarchy is bad or entertaining the notion that women could be in the priesthood for some people they're they're willing to have those conversations yeah but dude you start saying that the bible has got some problems and that it didn't drop out of the sky in final <laughs> form and then all of a sudden you know you really are on the outs and i think that's really sad to me um yeah it's a it's an anti-intellectual understanding of of the text. It's a, an incredibly modern interpretation of the Bible. Yeah. And and I think it what it does is it allows you to just turn your brain off to go, well, there it is in in plain English in in the you know, new international version. So that's that's the language Jesus talks and that's what totally. God said. And it's like, totally. oh, this is this is a much more complex and messy book. Yeah. And we're actually invited to join the conversation. It's a conversation. It's not, totally. you know. So anyways, that's a, that's a, I, I can understand how you would be considered heretical uh, because we've never been given another framework to even yeah. understand the Bible, which is really sad to me. So Totally. And then I think people too, like my, you know, my Greek and Hebrew is not good enough to know all of the intricacies of all of the nouns and whatnot. But I think there are a lot of people who have done the hard work. I've just got given a book um, by an amazing author. uh, But the book is about a woman named last name Bushnell. Hmm. And she basically like reinterprets all of these stories that and goes back to the Greek and Hebrew and basically highlights women in them. Hmm. And so she's telling the story, but she just like pushes forward another angle that you didn't see so clearly and it's blowing my mind. It's just like, wow. Mm. And and it allows that freedom to say she's referencing the Bible. She's actually claiming, I believe in scripture. I'm going back to its original language and I'm going to ask harder questions of it rather than like the Bible, the bound thing that we can buy in any store across North America is the actual word of God. She's going, it's scripture that is leading us somewhere that points us to Christ, but actually we need to do more work here. Yeah. Um, but I, I, yeah, I just think most people who go to, um, churches and have a, like you say, a, a faith that is not allowed to be intellectual would be really uncomfortable with that. Well, and God forbid you read something that's non-canonical, you know, like it's, it's kind of funny. Yeah. Um, our kids right now are reading the gospel of Thomas and yeah. we're introducing them to the fact that there are sacred texts that just yeah. simply didn't happen to make it into the cut. And, yeah. you know, so you have to start asking the question, well, why was this book included and that book excluded? And why was this voice added and that voice not? It's a, it's a, 
I think it's a fascinating conversation that actually builds faith as opposed to, you know, shuts down the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It allows more faith for sure. So we have kind of one big final question for you, and we ask this of everyone. Um, We've talked a lot about problems in the church, and and obviously Mm -hmm. they exist. We all know them. That's why most of us are here deconstructing our faith. But when when you look forward, um, when you look at the future of faith, what gives you hope about where we are going? I love this question. Two things. Um, The first one is I think that women are going through the necessary discomfort and pain to find a voice and to use it. I think they have, I don't think they need to find their voice. I think they just need to use it. And so I'm seeing an increasing amount of literature around um, where women fit in the gospel and um, yeah, faith and feminism. I think there's like a, a new, I think every generation because of the life of a woman has to like reestablish herself, which is part of my frustration. So what I'm seeing in my own generation is actually we're doing the work and it's, I think, going to start changing things. Um, so that would be the loudest one as it relates to women is people are working hard and sharing their voices. Mm. Um, and then the second one is I think that there is an openness to dialogue. And I think the moment we stop dialoguing and whether that's like me with myself or me with my others or me with the Holy Spirit, I think as soon as there's no longer dialogue, there is no hope of change. But I'm sensing, oh, we're actually in dialogue. Like I'm talking to people who are extremely conservative and I've, I'm talking to atheists and I'm talking to myself and I'm talking to who Christ is. And, and there's this like, it just feels like there's an openness to say like, where did we all come from and where are we now and why? And can we talk about it? Um, at least in the circles that I'm currently in. And I'm finding that something that gives me hope because I think the things you talk about, you're allowed to understand, you're allowed to grieve and you're allowed to heal. And hopefully um, the future looks brighter. Mm. That's beautiful. Okay. We're not quite done. I do <laughs> I want to ask you some fun questions. So okay. some just quick questions um, if you're okay with that. Of course. Okay. So the first question is, um, we when we talked before, you mentioned that you lived in the UK for a while. So yeah. for you, what was the coolest part about living in the UK? Oh, that's such a great question. I love the UK. I would say my favorite part was uh, if I could, it, w- it would be culture. I lived in the center of London. Um, went to school. I um, hate on the, you on I the Strand <laughs> at King's College London, and I basically after like a really hard academic day, I would pop in at my favorite museum. And there was like God, a couple. I pieces. really now I hate you. <laughs> Sorry, wasn't this meant to be a fun question? Well, I'm having fun. <laughs> um, I'm having fun. Yeah, and so I was just like, I like had these like a couple p- pieces of art that were my favorite. I didn't like research them. I couldn't even tell you who they were by, and I would just like sit and stare at them. I like I live in London. I love art, mm-hmm. and would like move on to my next museum and find my next pieces, and just like it, on my way on my commute home would stop and look at art. So sorry, Gary Allen. Uh. Uh, I, you know, I, I mean, London's my favorite city. I've been there, I think, nine times, but obviously yeah. didn't live there. And I got my my favorite piece of art in the National Gallery there um, at Trafalgar Square is the, yeah. hay, the Hay Wayne. Like, I know exactly where it is. I love it so much. And you can pop in. I, I can go straight to it yeah. and like, sit there and just, and I'm yeah, like, okay, I'm good. Well. Now I'm going to yeah. I'm gonna head out and go somewhere I can go else. home. So, yeah. Totally. Sit at a pub. 
Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yes, I know Have where those things year. are too. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. All right. So, uh, besides being so cool that you lived in London, um, mm-hmm. what do you do now in your free time for fun? In my free time, I currently ski. I am obsessed with adrenaline. <laughs> and so whenever I get the chance and whenever there's snow on the mountains here in Vancouver, I head up um, mm. and, f- and fly down the mountain. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. This one's really random. If you could choose one age to stay for the rest of your life, what age would you pick? Oh, I can I pick an age that I've not yet become? Sure. I'm going to go for like mid-40s. Hmm. Mm. Why is that? I, I, ooh, maybe this is not that fun of a question. I just think like a lot of your life drama and family drama, you've like settled who you are and you can just kind of like rest in this is, this is who I am. Um, and the more people, the older I get, the more people that I watch in, in that age group, I feel like they're like, yeah, this is, this is me. And, you know, I have a hard relationship with a sibling and we're like working towards healing and, but when you're in your 30s, everybody's still trying so hard to prove themselves. I'm like, come <laughs> on, guys. <laughs> yeah. Really? So that's uh, just my assumption. I've never been in my 40s yet, but I'm like, it looks great. <laughs> I mean, I, I, one I was going to say, I thought you were going to pick like 97 or something like that. Oh, no, <laughs> I still I, want my knees. Yeah. Like I really want to run and, <laughs> right. and hike. I'm like, I don't want to be like 50 or 60 where I'm like, my knees hurt. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can say for somebody who's in my very, very late 40s that okay. you, what you picked up on is actually correct. I, um, My wife and I have actually talked about this where we really? finally felt comfortable in our own skin. Mm. Yeah. Sometime in our forties to where I think at some point the ego, you just go, What the hell am I doing? Like, yeah. you know, this is over. Like nobody's this even is, listening. Nobody cares. <laughs> yeah. And you just are like, oh, this is this is as good as it's gonna get. And okay, I kind of like this. So totally. that's fascinating. All right. If you had to pick a favorite author, uh, who would it be and why? Oh, that's so hard. Oh my goodness. I am going to go with just for the sake of this conversation and the, the author I'm going to can I change your question? Yes, you sure. Can. I would say the author that changed my life was Thomas Merton and I know mm-hmm. it's like a fairly typical response for people who it's it was he was my entryway into the mystics and and I think one of the in my university era the sing, the author that rescued me quite mm-hmm. honestly. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's beautiful. His Seven Story Mountain is the most incredible autobiography. It's so well written. I've I've never I, I'm amazed at his ability to recall in a creative, incredible detail these events, these minute events that happened to him as a child. Yeah. It's almost as if he has a photographic memory of his past that it was on a loop. It's a beautiful, it's, beautiful read. It's mm. remarkable. Well, I guess I have to link to that in the show notes now. All right. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> nice. Last question. What's something that you just really miss about pre-pandemic life? Oh, I, the UK actually, I love dinner parties. Um, they do them so well that it's just like part of their, they just all do it. They're like, oh, we're having this dinner party. All these random people are coming. Come bring wine. And like, it's just this like really, it's a feast. And um, I've tried to start doing that with my group of friends in Canada. Um, And then the pandemic, it's like, I really miss like a group conversation. 
Mm. And that's not over Zoom where you can just like all be in the same room, all eating the same food, all having the same experience. Um, Yeah. So I would say dinner parties. I'm really over the like average walk, walk with a friend, you know? Mm. (laughs) I shouldn't say that publicly, but I just have. (laughs) See you guys all for dinner party once this is over. Yay. We'll come up. We'll come up. I'm down for that. That would be amazing. I haven't been to Vancouver in a long time, so I'd like to go back and Okay, as soon as this is over, you're on. All All right, right, great. Well, hey, Kelly, this has been uh, so good. Um, It's like talking to an old friend. So for anyone who's just met you, um, where can they find out more about you, your upcoming podcast, and some of your latest endeavors? Uh, Great question. I would say the best place is Instagram at the moment, and my handle is Kelly Rose Lamb. That simple. Hmm? That is simple. Isn't that fun? Um, Thank you guys so much for having me. Is that your middle name? It is. Yeah. That's beautiful. Thank you. It's a verb. I have like reclaimed it as not a flower, but a verb because Mm. I will rise. So Kelly Rose. Kelly Rose. My daughter is named Emma Rose. I love it. May she rise as well. Yes. 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 She's very strong. I love it. Well, thanks for joining us, Kelly. This has been great and um, good for my soul. Good for my heart to hear Mm -hmm from a kindred spirit like you and someone who's walked the path further than I have and who's wrestled with so much more. I've really just been, if, if I'm allowed to use this word edified by mm-hmm. our conversation today. So thanks mm-hmm. for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening this week. Quick reminder that if you haven't followed us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, you should. We've got other content and great conversations happening there, and we need your voice in them. So find us on Instagram at Holy Heretics Podcast and on Facebook and Twitter at Holy Heretics. See you next week. This episode was produced by the Sophia Society. Music is by Faith and Foxholes, and sound engineering is by Joshua Mudge. 